Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. We come now to the fourth and final section of Revelation chapter 14. This whole chapter, well, the whole book really, but this particular whole chapter has to do with eternal destinations. The fate of the unrepentant sinners under the wrath of God eternally and also the fate of believers and our heavenly reward. 
Now, what is set before us, again, as always, is the person of Christ. We never, ever forget that this book is about the Lord Jesus Christ, is the revelation of Jesus Christ to his church. And what is set before us is the person of Christ in terms of two images that we have in many other places in Scripture. One is the sight of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, something we find in the Gospels and in some epistles and, and certainly more than once here in Revelation. All the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds there to bring in the final judgment. And the other is the harvest, an even more plentiful image in Scripture and, of course, something we see around us in nature every year, this idea of harvest, the reaping of the last day. You know, all earthly harvests, we never ever think that, that we just are taking uh, in, in things that are in nature. They're not convenient sermon illustrations. They're things designed by a very all-wise creator in order that they might show forth spiritual things. And so the type of a harvest, something that we see in nature, every time that we see that, we think one day it's going to be the final harvest because that's what scripture tells us. And this is the great picture then that we are, we are shown, that on that final day when Christ comes riding on the clouds of glory, he will bring in the final harvest of souls. Now, there are two different harvests. It took me, um, it took me a couple of readings of this chapter to notice that these are particularly different functions going on. Well, one of the, the, is the harvest of the wheat. And the harvest of the wheat showing the, uh, the elect people being brought in, God's own precious people, the good harvest that's going to be brought into his barn and kept forever, but a different kind of harvest then as well. And it's the gathering of the grapes of wrath. And these grapes, their fate is not to be brought into the barn and kept forever with the Lord Jesus Christ, carefully kept, but rather to be trampled underfoot and the wine press, as it says, of the wrath of God. These unrepentant sinners, those who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who carry on in their sin, these will be put into the wine press of the wrath of God, there to endure it for all eternity. Now, both of these things happen in a moment. There is the slightest bit of priority and time given to the gathering in of the elect, but at the very same time, there is the reaping of the wicked as well. And this moment is the time for reaping, and that's the subject of our sermon this morning, the time for reaping. And we'll consider it with these three points. The first, the son of man with a sharp sickle. Second, bringing in the harvest. And third, gathering the grapes of wrath. So first, the son of man with a sharp sickle. We read it in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like a son of man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. It's the son of man. Well, that, of course, is the title given to Christ in the great description that we have in Revelation chapter 1, which controls everything else. A picture that we have of Christ and all the details which explain the attributes of God, the attributes of Christ that are being demonstrated throughout the book of Revelation. And the title that he's given is the Son of Man. It says in 
chapter 1, verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, pointing again to the holiness, his perfection. He cannot tolerate sin. And one day his intolerance for sin, his perfect holiness, will be expressed in his wrath, in his judgment against sinners. And likewise, his intolerance for sin, his perfect holiness, will not forever allow his own children to be apart from him and to suffer the persecution of the world. He will soon enough come and bring us to himself and to make us as perfectly holy as he himself is. And it says particularly, we see this, uh, the, the Son of Man is very common, but in particular on the cloud. And that's a little bit more particular. He's coming on the clouds. We see that in, in Daniel. It's not a very common portrait. We have the idea in the, the Old Testament, in, uh, a cloud is, uh, but a cloud in an exodus of something that covers the glory of God. Yes, God is showing his, his presence among the people of Israel in a cloud. It's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. But it sort of is something that covers the glory of God. They can't really see him. Only, only Moses is granted a glimpse. But for the rest of them, his presence is known by his veiled glory. They can't see him. But this cloud is a little different. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, who, which shall not pass away. And, and here it's more like a, a showcase. It is a theater of the glory of God, this white cloud. And instead of concealing the glory of God, every eye shall see it. That's something we also have in the mini-apocalypse of Matthew chapter 24. And he explains to his disciples, you know, they'll, they'll say he's coming here, don't believe it. They say there's a rumor here, don't believe it. Because when I do come, every last person shall see me. There will be no question. And what he says is this, Then a sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You'll see him. It's a public manifestation, these white clouds of glory. Now, I I mentioned it wasn't a terribly common thing, but one, one particular other scripture that I want to point us to with the idea of him coming on the clouds of glory is that we ought to consider his response to the high priest of the trial. You know that Christ was put on trial by this kangaroo court, and the the high priest sits in judgment over the Son of God, and Jesus does not dignify the proceedings with much of a response. He's silent, as a sheep is silent before his shearer. He doesn't say much, but this he does say. In chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That 
is no incidental remark. That is not a random bit of information he happens to throw out. That is his summary defense, and it is a crushing offense to this wicked man. Jesus was making his case not now in terms of fulfilled prophecy. They had that chance, didn't they? All the fulfilled prophecy that Christ fulfilled on this earth in his ministry. Not now in terms of his miraculous works, which no one could possibly gainsay. Anyone who had eyes to see could see that this man came from God. They had to admit that. Not now in terms of his sinless life. No one could convict of of sin. No one could rightly accuse him of ever breaking God's law at all. But he wasn't making his case at this point. He was speaking to this hardened rebel. And he wasn't speaking to him as one whom had any prospect at this point of salvation. He's speaking to this hardened rebel and he's saying, Yes, I am the Christ, your rightful Lord. And you may not want to acknowledge that now, but soon enough you will. The next time you see me will be on Judgment Day. And that scripture you hear about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory in, in Daniel that you should know, yes, that's me, and you'll see me then in my glory, coming to bring you to judgment. And now we see that fulfillment in Revelation chapter 14. We see, of course, an unveiling of Christ in all of his glory, and we see an unveiling of the future, these things that are prophesied in, in Scripture, what Christ himself made this prophecy uh, when he was speaking to the high priest. It comes to be here in Revelation 14. Now this is a visible occurrence. As we've said, it's something that can be seen by those on the earth. In fact, it said back in the beginning chapter of Revelation, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even those who pierced him will see him coming on the clouds. Also, this son of man has a golden crown. Now, that's a rather more straightforward element, but it certainly signals an important shift. Now, having this crown represents kingly authority. And we remember again that Christ came before in humiliation. It was possible for him to be brought to trial at his time. It wasn't possible for him to lay hands on him before it was his time. But it was possible for him to suffer. It was possible for him to be put to death. And when people saw him, they didn't see a king. There is nothing physical. There is no physical manifestation of his glory. He came in the state of humiliation, but he will come again in glory, and things will be very different. And the fact that he is now wearing the golden crown, not, no more a, a crown of thorns, the fact that he's wearing that crown is a reminder that he will come again in sovereign glory. And what does he have in his hand? A sickle. A sharp sickle. It's very important in this chapter. It's mentioned seven times in just these six verses, all the verses we're considering. Now, one thing about the sickle that we have to to keep in mind, of course, we all know the picture, right? The the sickle, the farmer used to use that, in some places still does, as a hand tool to to cut down the, the wheat to bring in the harvest. But one particular thing is that the sickle itself does not bring to the final disposition. We don't know what's going to happen to what is thereby cut down. It's just a, a, a severing. It's a separation. And later, the farmer has to do the further work of, of, of the final disposition of that harvest, whether it's good or bad, whether it's going into his barn or whether it's going to be thrown away and burned. 
And so likewise, the picture of the sickle itself, it applies both to the godly and the ungodly, the believers and the unbelievers, that Christ is going to sever us from this earthly life and bring us into eternal destiny. Now this says, Revelation eleven eighteen. Nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that you should, on the one hand, reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The time of the dead, the great day of judgment, has come. Well then, what is he going to do? I said this sickle is just bringing about the separation, but there are two different destinies in view. Well, our second point then is that he's bringing in the harvest, first of all. It says in verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, I just want us to consider just for a moment the fact that the time has come. The time has come. There is a day coming. The time is coming. It is known to God. It has a date. It has a specific time. We don't know that date. We don't know that time, but God does. It's a real date and a real time. And it's coming. And that's, it's like a harvest, right? The, the harvest happens after everything that is necessary before that. Uh, moves to its natural progression. The farmer prepares a field, he plants, and you don't see anything for a little while. You see nothing, but then shoots appear, and then they come up, and you see uh, stalks of grain, and then they, they turn uh, the, the color of, of ripe grain. You see this beautiful scene of the, the wheat field rippling in the wind, and it remains that way for a little while, and you think it's going to remain that way forever. Day after day, you see kind of the same scene. And you don't know when the, not being a farmer, you don't know when the harvest is coming. You're not sure of the particular timing. But the farmer has this all in mind. He knows exactly when it's going to happen. He's looking for these signs. And when, when he knows that the, the harvest is, is ripe, then it's going to come. The harvest is coming. And one day in our modern scene, rather than a sickle, the farmer drives out in his enormous combine harvester. And it, it's just all at, a t- at one time. You leave in the morning, it's there. You come back at, at night and the whole field has been reaped and there's nothing left. It's just dirt. It's all gone. Nothing left. Well, just like that, we see Christ's church, which is the wheat. It's growing. You know, long time ago, it was just little seeds and then they had little sprouts. But it grows. And it's starting to look, maybe perhaps to us, to be mature. And maybe we're in that situation of looking out at a, at a wheat field. And we just don't know, do we, when the end is coming. But we know it is coming. We know that it's a precious harvest. And that Christ is not going to let it rot out on the field. He's going to bring us to harvest. But that time is unknown to man. I want us to consider Christ's own explanation of this in Matthew 24 because it cannot possibly be improved upon. You want to know how unknown that time is, how unexpected the moment of harvest is? Well, he says that very clearly in Matthew 24, verse 30, and in the next 12 verses, I'll read it at length. 
Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What is he talking about? The very same thing we have in Revelation. He's coming on the clouds of glory. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, knows no, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. For as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two will be left in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. You see the, the power and the perfection of these things. They are carrying on normal, everyday, ordinary life. And no one knows it's coming. Just like the days of Noah. No one knew it was coming. That ark took a long time to build, didn't it? Not just a, a year or two. Hundreds of years. And, well, the, this, this prophecy relating to it and the, the building of the ark, it took so very long, and, and there it is. And one day to the next, they see an ark that looks like it's nearing completion, and, and they, they don't know. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's the next day. And they grow weary of being expectant about it. And then it happens at the moment they're not expecting. And this idea of people carrying on their ordinary task of grinding or of being, doing their work in the field, one is taken and the other is left. Who is the one who's taken? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the child of God, the elect, because they're taken a moment before the others. And they're gathered into the harvest. There's a definite time coming. It's unknown to us and we'll not. The people of this world will not be expecting it. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, I say it's unknown, but it is not irrational. It's unknown, but it's not without wisdom. That day and hour will come when the number of the elect is complete. Because, again, it is a perfect picture of a harvest. It is not less perfect than a farmer. A farmer waits till the precise moment where that wheat is as ripe as it's going to get. He's probably plus or minus a day. He may not have it completely right. And maybe some of that wheat isn't as ripe as it ought to be. Maybe some hasn't come to full maturity. Maybe some others have gone too far and it's already spoiled. But not God. His timing is perfect. And he waits until the very last person wants. Remember, there's a definite number of his own sheep. The sheep that he gives to the son for him to save. He saved them on the cross. And in time, all of them will come to Christ. And when that last one does, that's it. The world has no more purpose as it currently is. Time will come to an end and the harvest will be brought in. Well, that's the first thing he's doing. He's bringing in his own harvest when it's ripe. 
But then, on our third point, he's doing something else. He's gathering the grapes of wrath. We read in verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepresses up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Well, once again, we have this all throughout Revelation, isn't it? This imagery that we have of other places in the Bible. And it's a wonderful summing up and bringing together of all these various strands of prophecy and types throughout all of Scripture. And it's bringing together, in this case, something from Joel chapter 3. It says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in this sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. It's a picture of harvest. It's a picture of a people that are now ripe. But the ripeness is something else. The ripeness is not that it's a good, uh, treasured harvest to God. The ripeness is that they have become ripe for the wrath of God. Now, why this particular image? We know, of course, that sometimes thine vineyards and, and, uh, and vines and grapes are used of the people of God particularly in the Gospel of John, you remember that. But the reason why, it's, so we're not, it's not in, innately that, the reason why this particular picture is put is not the vines as they are growing in fruitfulness, which is a picture actually of the people of God, but the vines is what, what happens to them next. You see, unlike wheat, which is useful, something that was sold in the ancient world as it was. You bring in the wheat, and after you thresh it, it's all ready to go. It's something, it's the, the finished product, and you sell it to someone. Unlike that, you didn't sell grapes. That wasn't the final product that was going to market. What you did with grapes was to crush them. You crushed them in the, the wine vat. You, you, uh, you, you, made the, you trampled them underfoot. That's the picture. It says in Isaiah 63, 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from these peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. You have this picture. There's a winepress. It's, uh, I don't know, something about a foot deep. It's a, a fairly decent-sized area. You have more than one doing it. Normally, Jesus says he's doing this work alone, but normally you have more than one doing this, and you just they take off their, their shoes and they, they just crush the grapes, they stamp on them. Because the grapes themselves are not there's nothing that's worthwhile in these grapes. There's nothing that there's, there's nothing innately fruitful there. What the only use they have is to be crushed and for the what's in them, uh, the the grape juice to be, to come out, and that's the fruit of this particular harvest. And so this harvest is not really a beneficial harvest in the way that the elect are. As Jonathan Edwards says, the wicked are useful in their destruction only. I don't know if you've ever considered the import of those words, but they are extremely harsh, aren't they? Are they true? I I think they are. What way are the wicked, the unrepentant sinner, in what way might they be useful to God? 
Are they useful in any way? Well, they don't worship him according to his word. You know, that's one of the great uses of God's people, is that God wants a people who will worship him in accordance to the word. Well, they may participate in all sorts of worship-like activities, whether with sports or even sometimes with religion, but they do not worship him according to his word because they hate that. And they offer no spiritual service to God. They may do good things, but they are, as Augustine calls them, splendid vices. They're being done for every reason under heaven other than out of love to God. They do not glorify him in their works. They are glorifying themselves. They are glorifying idols. They are serving idols. They obey only the world, the flesh, and the devil, all the enemies of God. At what point, then, will these creatures of God ever glorify their maker? As we know, it's impossible for anything that God makes to not bring him glory. At what point, then, will they ever bring him glory? When they are crushed in the winepress of the wrath of God, then they will bring him glory. When God demonstrates the unbelievable severity of his righteous anger and wrath upon him, then they will glorify him. Now, how is it that God is glorified in the display of his wrath? Well, just to bring a more earthly type of illustration, there's something called an AC-130. It's an aircraft. It's based on a very old transport airplane. It's not much to look at. It's over 60 years old. It's uh, just got propellers. It's nothing exciting. It's less exciting than the sort of airplanes that ordinary people fly in. Nothing to look at. We once did this exercise with them in, in Central Asia, and it was at night, and uh, we, we were there, and there's this target there, and we're talking to them on the radio, and first we, we see that they laser designate the target, you know, out of the sky. We can't even see where they are, but this laser beam comes down. And then they start with the chain guns, and these tracers are just ripping through the air and into this target. And then they start with the heavy artillery from the air, directly firing on it, just destroying what was ever left of this target. And you know, by the time that was done, we looked at this old, ordinary-looking airplane in a very different way. We had seen the wrath of this aircraft and its mighty power. Well, however, an imperfect illustration that is, that is much, much, much more so with the wrath of God. You know, Christ did not look much like much to sinners on this earth. He didn't look like much to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was not on his face worshiping the Son of God like he should be. He stood in judgment over him. He didn't look like much in the time of his humility, but they will see him in an entirely different light one day when he bears his arm and pours out his awesome awesome wrath upon all the, the wicked people on this earth. It says in Isaiah 30, the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. There will be glory then. You will see him as he is. And these wicked will at last bear some fruit. The glory of God shown in their destruction. Now, I do want to remind us that it is righteous wrath. This is no mere demonstration. It is not arbitrary. The wicked richly deserve everything that they will get. And indeed, that's part of this whole idea of ripening, you see. There's a ripening process to grapes. 
And there's an, a ripening process with regard to the wicked. What makes them ripe is because of the patience and forbearance of God. God hasn't already done that. You see, he is patient and forbearing. And he does not give the wicked what they deserve today. And all this patience and forbearance simply makes them all the more ripe then. The fact that they're allowed to live another day on this earth makes them all the more ripe then for destruction. It speaks in, you know, in Genesis 15, 16, this kind of enigmatic verse. It says, In the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What on earth does that mean? The wickedness of the, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Lord, why do you want it to be complete? Because he's going to destroy the Amorites. But not now. He's waiting until the wickedness is complete, you see. And so it is with this whole earth. One day, as we said, one day the church will be complete. One day the elect will be complete and they'll be brought into harvest. And on that same day, a fraction of a second, moment, whatever it might be later thereafter. So it is the sinfulness of this world will be complete and they will be brought to utter destruction. Now the obvious application for this is to be a warning to the unregenerate. You know, one of the uh, things that a, a Puritan preacher never did was to imagine that everyone in front of him was regenerate. To imagine that everyone before him, just because they were in church, was a believer. In fact, we have to keep in mind that these great evangelistic sermons that we look back in with, uh, as great models of the way it should be done, they were preached in churches with people who spent every Sunday of their life going to church. I doubt that there were many exceptions in the days of Jonathan Edwards. There were later on, that's true. They were always in church. And yet, they are preached as if it's well possible that there are many among them who are not believers, not regenerate. Well, if you are this morning and not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what's your situation? How can we describe your situation in terms of what we've seen in Scripture? Your situation is as a grape. And this grape is ripening. Now, the process is happening over time. I don't know exactly how long it takes for each individual grape to be ripe. All we know is that moment by moment, the grape becomes more ripe. And the thing is, the weepers are coming. They have a schedule known to God, and they are on their way. You don't know when, though. Could be today. Could be a year from now. Could be 40 years from now. We don't know. The reapers, one way or another, whether it's the, the end of your own life on this earth or whether it's the destruction of the whole world, they're coming. And what they'll do with you is to put you into the wine press of the wrath of God. That's what's going to happen to a grape of wrath. Now that's a terrible thing to consider. It's a terrible image in my mind, looking out and imagining that are, there are before me, there are both the, the wheat 
growing into ripeness, some just, some just green, some just bare shoots, some more ripe in age and maturity and, and bringing glory to God and ready to be brought into the eternal harvest, and others before me as grapes, ripening for destruction. Well, my plea for you is just what it says in Deuteronomy 32. They are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise and they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Oh, that you were wise and would consider your latter end. And that you would repent and turn to Christ in faith. Because while you yet have on this earth life and breath, the day of salvation is with you. And yet you can be warned by God's preachers yet you can be warned by the word of god yet it can happen to you what paul says in acts 20 you know something we should consider at no point did paul ever express any desire any anxiety with regard to being relevant with regard to being fitting into the situation of the world around him never did he say i testify to you that i'm so thankful that i was as much like the world as i possibly could be that was never ever a thought on his mind you know what was on his mind? You know what his anxiety was? That he properly warned people? He said, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 26 and 27. Well, I would not be guilty of your blood either. And therefore I make it plain to you that if you stand outside of Christ, if you are trusted in anything other than the shed blood of Christ... That you stand in the greatest danger of eternal wrath of God. And you ought to repent and believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Wonderfully simple. And you ought to do it. And secondly, it's a reminder for the saints. It's a reminder of the saints because it's a great encouragement, isn't it? Great encouragement to know this is what's going to happen. But all of history is urging on, it's moving forward, it's moving on to our salvation. It's a wonderful future that remains. He is coming, you see. We don't know the day or the hour, but he's coming. He's coming to gather us in this soon. And the soon, the immediacy of it, it's not any particular packet of time. You see, that this, the immediacy of it does not say, well... Yes, but with a minimum window from this moment of a certain time. And, and then it's, it could be, it's indeterminate. It could happen maybe, you know, in 2020 or something like that, 2030. But uh, we've still got a few days until then. No, there's no, there's nothing, there's no buffer at all between us and eternity, thankfully. And there's therefore nothing that needs stand in way of your expectation. The expectation is a daily, moment-by-moment moment expectation of the people of God that our redemption is near. Some of us are invited to be wedding guests, aren't we? Tomorrow afternoon. Well, we may just as easily be summoned to another wedding feast tomorrow morning. How do we know? Do we live in expectation of that? I hope we are therefore ready. Because that's what Jesus Christ, that's his application for this when he spoke it in Matthew 24. And that's his application, no doubt, to those he speaks in the seven churches of Revelation application is be ready watch be watchful be expectant 
of your redemption because it draws near. You know, again, going back to the modern picture of what the farmer does, he has this very expensive combine harvester. I would guess if you took every car that is outside in a car park and you combined them and you sold them, you could barely afford to buy one of these top-of-the-line John Deere combine harvesters. It's GPS-guided, thinking of one near our field. And the reason why he's willing to spend so much money on it, over a quarter of a million pounds, is because he cares about what he's bringing in. He cares about the harvest. This wheat is something valuable to him, and he doesn't want to leave any of it behind. He wants to, he's determined to bring as much of it in as possible. Huh. You people of God, you grain of wheat, you, you've already come at the infinite cost of the shed blood of the Son of God. You're something of immense value to him. It's not just going to be, he's not just spending a quarter of a million pounds on a combine harvester. Having already shed his precious blood to redeem you, there is no doubt that he's coming for you. And he's not going to leave you behind. He will come, and he will find you, and he will bring you in, and there will be none lost. None of all the sheep that the Father gave to the Son, none will be lost. So be ready. Imagine the moment when every eye will see him in the clouds. No more time. No more, no more nothing. Yes, for the un- ungodly, there's no more chances to repent. But for us, well, no more opportunities to, re- to serve him in various ways. But no more temptations. No more trials. No more world flesh and the devil. But eternity with Christ. You know, the whole thrust of this book leads us to this very thing to be ready, isn't it? Four times in the final chapter, the final book of the Bible in Revelation 22, on the very lips of Christ himself, there is a sense of great urgency. It says in verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22.10, The time is at hand. Chapter, or uh, verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly. And in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that in the affirmity of our flesh, we do not consider our end. We do not consider our eternity as we ought. For too many, Lord, we have been in a permanent slumber. We always imagine that there will be another day, another chance. Pray, Lord God, that the unrepentant, the unregenerate, would consider their end, would consider what's going to happen to them, and would consider the immediacy of their situation and would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for your people, we who sadly in our remaining sin, in the infirmity of our flesh, yet, Lord, get too carried away with the things of this world, too desirous of making an earthly paradise and of making our own ungodly idols, Lord God, help us 
to bask in the glory, the reality that Christ is coming again and he is coming soon. Help us, Lord, to live in the moment-by-moment joyful expectation of his coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.